Morning Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It is Tuesday, and you are watching AM to DM. Here is a tweet from you, Saeed. Oh. Sometimes it just feels like everyone is committing white collar crimes but me. Oh, you feeling a little sorry. You feel a little left out, buddy? I'm feeling a little left out. <laughs> I just, you know, I want to be one of the cool kids and bezeling or whatnot. I mean, just so many people are doing it. For example, uh, Yusha Callahan tweeted yesterday about a man who stole $122 million from Facebook and Google, no big deal, by sending them random bills, which the companies dutifully paid. Every freelancer in America right now is furious. Everybody that that's ever had to wait six months oh, just man. to get like a $300 check is just like, what the hell? What a scam. Incredible, incredible. Just, I just love this. The idea of somebody just being like, huh. uh, hey, do you, would you yeah. pay this? He made up fake invoices and made up a fake company, <laughs> registered a fake company in Latvia, which I guess feels like is a thing that happens a lot lately, and then just would send them invoices. And apparently Google and Facebook between 2013 and 2015, two years is a long time to get away with this. That's true, that is also, very true. Like didn't check, they were like, cool, all right, and just paid $122 million. Brilliant! A hundred, that's the other, that's how spread very thin. Over two years, that's like that's like him getting bolder and bolder. Yeah, oh Just yeah. Just like $122 yeah, yeah. million. So, you know, Living that yacht life. Right, right. So he's going to jail for 30 years. But oh, listen, well, that's a lot. That's- I, as I understand it, you know, white-collar crimes have, like, nicer prison situations. <laughs> I'm like, you know, you get books, you get to read. You're, you're sitting here, you're, you're weighing the pros and cons. Martha Stewart went through something very similar, and now she's about to enter the weed business. I don't know if you saw about that. So it's like a whole thing. Also, you know, we have, you know, Paul Manafort. He's committed mm. enough white-collar crimes for, like, literally all mm. of us, mm. for the rest of us, like, per capita. Uh, you know, the college admission scams. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a, it's a whole thing. It feels like last summer was kind of like the summer of the scam, and slowly that is transitioned. Still scams, but to this white-collar level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Everybody's trying to make that money. You know, I just feel a little left out. So let's take it (laughs) to the timeline. What white-collar crime are you most likely to commit? Uh, Let us know using the hashtag there is a tweet for everything. Yeah. Oh yeah, don't tweet it if you're actually gonna like. If this is Use hypothetical. That if you're going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> account. All right. Speaking of white collar crimes, Daily Beast reporter Maxwell Tani tweeted. Daniel, uh, Stormy Daniels' lawyer was allegedly working with Jesse Smollett's lawyer to extort Nike, which was represented by the law firm that represented Elizabeth Holmes. Bitch, and that, what? If that isn't like a spin the wheel of 2019 words and phrases. You have to read the tweet a couple of times to get it all. There's and a lot I of still moving parts. I've read it several times, <laughs> two days now, and I still don't understand what's going on there. It just feels silly. Well, Rebecca O'Brien, who covers white-collar law enforcement, which means she's probably the busiest person in journalism, she works for the Wall Street Journal and joins us now. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Busy times, busy times. Um, there is so much going on with Michael Avenatti. He's had quite a year. Uh, what exactly was he charged with yesterday? Yesterday, he was charged. Michael Avenatti um, was charged yesterday in two separate federal court cases in two separate um, by two separate U.S. attorney's offices. In New York, he was charged with um, extortion and conspiracy to extort. Uh, those are four counts related to that. And we'll get that in a second. And in California, he was charged with um, bank fraud. That is, you know, it's more of a personal financial situation over there. Personal. Okay, so he's got him coming at both angles. Yeah. Let me ask, do we know how he got caught? Well, in the New York case, he was caught, um, you know, allegedly he was attempting to extort Nike for a bunch of money. And 
he, you know, he's been, he's a bulldog of a lawyer. He prides himself on being tenacious. And from the complaint, it looked like he was, you know, he was attempting on behalf of a client who said he told the lawyers from Nike that he had a client who had information about um, illicit payment payments from Nike to um, college or to high school athletes. This is related to another case that we can get into later if you want. Um, but he also apparently, uh, or the lawyers and the prosecutors now say that he attempted to extort Nike um, because, and he was caught on tape um, trying to seek tens of millions of dollars um, for himself, for his client and for himself and his partner, um, uh, celebrity attorney, Mark Garagos, who were trying to force Nike or compel Nike, Nike allegedly to pay them uh, for an internal investigation into this matter. Okay. Oh my gosh. So much here. You you mentioned that. It, it's so much. Uh, you mentioned already that Michael Avenatti, of course, has many other well-known, uh, many well-publicized cases. So how does this relate to all of those other current cases? Well, one thing that's came up in the New York um, complaint, the criminal complaint that was filed yesterday, is that he he uses he they they get get at one point in the criminal charges they say he was going to use his celebrity and his wide Twitter following to kind of uh, publicize these allegations about Nike. So in this case, it's his fame that is part of the issue. Oh. Um, he was threatening to go forward or make public um, claims he said he had uh, about Nike. And that is an example of how his high profile uh, might have worked against him in this matter. It might have been drawing attention because he was. He was talking about that press conference. Uh -huh. He was really hyping it up. And then it kind of looked like you played yourself. Has he said anything about these allegations? Yeah, late last night, you know, there are a bunch of us outside the court. It wasn't clear he was, he was, um, he had make a first appearance in court yesterday. And that happened right around seven o'clock. And um, it wasn't until, I guess, around 8.30 that he ended up leaving the court and he spoke to the gathered press um, and he just spoke very quickly. He didn't take any questions, but he said he expects to be fully exonerated once the facts of the case come out. Um, and the New York case did come together very quickly. So we'll have to hear in the coming weeks what his response is or what his explanation is for the alleged conduct. Yeah, and I'm sure we will be hearing from him. I wanted to ask you, you know, again, your beat at the Wall Street Journal is white collar law enforcement. This is what you do. Um, we've been covering scams, you know, the college admission scams, obviously, you know, DC, Paul Manafort, everything that's going on. And we've been having a conversation where it seems like, you know, the summer of the scam, the winter, the spring of the scam is an ongoing conversation. From your perspective though, has something changed? Are we simply more interested in? Are we just more intrigued or is something else going on? Uh, well, I think there's something to be said. Um, you know, my beat white collar law enforcement five years ago was covering a lot of insider trading Wall Street cases. And now I feel like my beat, the guy who had that beat before covered all of these, you know, financial crimes. And I seem to be covering a lot of public corruption cases. And I, I don't know if that's just um, because there are more prosecutors interested in that. I don't think that's the case. The, the, the caseload probably has been about the same. I think that the public is more interested in the behavior of public officials and in people who are kind of out there in corruption generally. It seems to be a, of general interest. Um, and we're not seeing some kind of financial crimes prosecuted. So um, I do think we're interested in scams. And I, I, I think that it's something about there's kind of a journalistic impulse to go towards the hype and try to understand what's behind it and if it's worth it. Um, you know, the, the, you mentioned Elizabeth Holmes, and of course, the Wall Street Journal is very proud of our coverage of that 
um, of, of Theranos. And that was another good example of someone who was getting a lot of media attention and a little bit of digging or a lot of digging um, sort of uncovered some of the truths there. So. Absolutely. Well, you know, we might have to have you on like at least once a week. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, truly, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thanks. I also, I can't stop thinking about the, Just... Michael Avenatti, like, it's yeah. only been like a year and a few months That's... since he really was on the national stage. I forgot that he was like going to run for president. Totally right? Forgot. At one point he was going to run totally for president. Forgot. And now, don't forget, she threw around a lot of allegedly. Yes. Got it? Allegedly? Which allegedly. with him seems like a really important word. But like, what? Well, anyways, Apple had a big old event yesterday, but I think I'm with Carslow who tweeted, they throw Apple events every other week now, or? Yeah, it, it really does feel that way. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't, it felt like it used to be once a year and it was a huge event. Even I would pay attention, and I don't think of myself as a techie, and now it's like, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, well, BuzzFeed News tech reporter Nicole Wynn was at yesterday's Apple event. She joins us now from California. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hi. Okay, so let's get into this question. It does feel like they used to be like a once-a-year huge event, and now it just feels like they're happening constantly. Is that just me and Isaac misperceiving things, or is it accurate? <laughs> Apple is worth a trillion dollars, so they have to make that revenue somehow. I think that these new events are reflective of um, sort of them getting new products out into the world so people can buy them. <laughs> they're, they're hustling. They're, they're, up, they're up on the Making money moves. Yeah, they're like, we're hiring a lot of people. We got to pay these people. All right, well, let's get into the actual announcements, Nicole. What were the standouts to you? So this event was all about services instead of hardware like we're used to seeing. And I think the biggest announcements um, were a news subscription service that gives Apple users access to issues from over 300 magazines, including places like The New Yorker and, and Vogue for $10 a month. And that's out now. And the other big announcement was um, a completely star-studded streaming service that uh, rivals places like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Um, with people like uh, like Oprah and Spielberg and J.J. Abrams and Sofia Coppola, and that's called Apple TV Plus, um, and we don't know what the price uh, of that is going to be yet. Okay, so let, let's get into the news part first, right? Uh, obviously, we work in news, we work in media, it's relevant to us. Uh, what actually is Apple News offering that is different, that is innovative? Because, you know, like a newspaper or a book anthology is curated. <laughs> so what's different here? Right. So, so not much. You know, a human news, uh, a human curated news feed um, is, is something publications have been doing since the beginning of journalism. Um, but what's interesting here is that Apple has editors instead of algorithms picking and choosing what to feature in its app. So now we have uh, a tech company essentially deciding what's important to read for millions of people in, in the U.S., um, and uh, another point that Apple tried to make yesterday is that uh, a lot of the personalization features, the recommended um, magazine issues or, or the recommended articles that aren't picked by humans are actually done on the iPhone device themselves. And Apple has no view into what you read. So they were trying to really flex their, their privacy angle there. Huh. All right, now let's talk about the TV thing, because for me, it's like in a couple of years, is it going to be Apple versus Netflix versus Amazon? at the Oscars, like why is Hollywood seemingly moving to Cupertino? Um, if these shows are ever made, uh, we, we didn't see a trailer or anything yesterday, then, then probably yes. If Apple really wants to succeed in this space, which is so, so competitive, then they're really gonna have to make must-see 
shows and, and movies. And, and if they, they are making those um, super watchable, messy uh, content, then they're going to have to win some awards probably. Um, but the reason why uh, Hollywood is in Cupertino is is because you know of what Oprah said, which is uh, they're in a billion pockets, y'all, and and they have um, a huge distribution advantage, which is being able to preload that Apple TV Plus app on um, the millions of devices that um, that are already in people's homes. Right. I also wanted to ask, you know, you were there yesterday. Obviously, we were talking about it on Twitter and I was like, oh, Oprah's there now. I'm interested. How did it land in the room? Mm. What was the impact mm. of the presentation? Did it did it make a, a real um, impact on people? Well, I think most of the news had um, had already leaked, but Oprah was definitely the the one more thing surprised. And um, and I, I think that Oprah is a, a huge get for Apple. I, I, I think that they're really leaning super heavily on star power um, instead of Netflix, which sort of prides itself on plucking actors out of obscurities and obscurity and making them Instagram stars. Um, and uh, I think that we just haven't seen what what they're going to make it. So uh, so as a journalist, I'm, I'm skeptical. I I um, won't really uh, believe it in, until until I see it myself. Until you see the final product. Well, let's talk yeah. about Magnesis. Um, I mean, the Apple card. <laughs> a, a, t- a tweet from you, Nicole. It's very interesting that the thing making the most noise on Twitter and elsewhere isn't the new programming made by schmancy people or the new subscription or the new indie gaming focus service. It's the credit card. Hmm. Now, Nicole, I'm joking about it now, but tell me why I'll probably have an Apple credit card come summer. Um, I think two things. So, so I actually misspoke. There was hardware that was announced yesterday and it was this um, titanium card with a laser etched name and and no credit card number. And that's uh, Apple's physical credit card. Um, And the second thing is that I think it's the uh, ultimate symbol of you know, wealth and capitalism and status. Um, imagining, you know, forking over this titanium card and, and being like, yes, I'm an Apple user. I have an iPhone. Um, I'm probably a, a person that has, you know, a certain level of money and, and cares about what kind of products that are on my person. Um, I thought the credit card was really interesting because it's not really offering much more than um, what other credit cards offer, except that the, you know, app looks really nice and, and the interface is really easy to use. Um, but it's a, a forcing hand for, for Apple, uh, for other companies who haven't integrated Apple Pay yet, because now that users get 2% cash back on any purchase made through Apple Pay, they're going to be demanding from, from store owners um, to integrate that, that uh, payment service. Wow. All right. Interested to see how that plays out. Nicole, as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks. I did see that app. And let me tell you, it does. It, well, it looks really pretty and there's uh-huh. a lot of tracking, but how much... I don't know if I want to know those things. It was like, you can really break down your spending over the month. It's like, that might be too oh, you're much like, fiscal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Twitter, let's take it to the timeline. How do you feel about all this Apple news? Are you excited? Are you bored? Are you scared about this tech monopoly taking over our lives? Let us know using the hashtag AM2. Apple's maybe a cult? You know, at this point, you just got to pick one. That's how I feel. Well, anyway, we've got a great show for you today. Reed Scott from Veep is here, and I'm going to be talking with the wonderful poet Mahogany L. Brown about her new children's book. It's called Woke Baby. It made me cry while I was reading it. Up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. Let's get into these fire tweets. Allison tweeted, 
I think it is so cute that parents understand their children so well. The kid would be like, and the mom would be like, no, you cannot get your Cheetos. I am about to cook. Oh, God, I love that. That is real. I love it. Anytime it happens on a TV show or movie, it gets a laugh out of me. Yeah, I, without also, fail. I feel like <laughs> people can do it with their pets, too. Yes. I feel like there's sometimes yes. the dog's like, loath as I am to draw a comparison between your progeny and dogs. Anyway, this next tweet comes from Kai. <laughs> Kai tweeted me, damn, I think this nigga really likes me. Him. And see. <laughs> okay, so our producer Mackenzie picked this tweet and you know, Mackenzie, how dare you? This is really rude. Rude? <laughs> it feels like you're taking this a little personally. Yeah, I am. I you am. Is, so, you know. It's so. just a funny tweet. I Whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. To... I'm just rolling up my sleeves <laughs> for no reason. All right, I've hit this before. Joe <laughs> tweeted, she deserved a blunt, but you were only a vape pen. Rupee core. Oh, man. Wow. I mean, that is a funny line. It is. I mean, the fact <sighs> is, I don't know if it's real or satire. I can... Damn. Hit the button. Hit the button. This hit next tweet comes from Devin. <laughs> Devin tweeted, lady, just because our dogs are mutually whiffing ass does not mean we have to have a conversation. <laughs> I'm assuming this is a dog park. I'm absolutely, but that's really, I'm, what is dog park etiquette? Are you allowed to be like, listen, just because our dogs are friends doesn't mean I that mean, we have to be buddies. I can kind of be like, I'm trying to stay focused. Like, I'm my just, dog's very unpredictable here. I ain't got time to be like doing this with you, girl. Like, just, just so we're here for one thing. Focus on the mission. <laughs> or it might be a nice way to make friends. Anyways, you're very tweeted. Okay, let's go. To the day comes from Nathan. A huge red flag for me is when a date does not find me funny. It demonstrates that there exists perhaps a cultural gap that is simply too far to bridge. I am the funniest person I have ever met. I regularly walk into traffic because I'm overcome with laughter <laughs> thinking about me. Mm. I feel like Mackenzie's going through some dating stuff though. We got a lot of good dating, a lot of good dating tweets got picked by our producers. You know, it's like morning. February was last month and we're like, you know, in the fallout. It's it's was, Sunday was a nice day. It did feel like the kind of the beginning of a romantic comedy. I would say if you don't think I'm funny and you don't like Beyonce, like which is it's just it's the end. Check. Check. All right. Well, coming up, I'm sitting down with actor Reed Scott from Veep. Load up next. We're going live from the district. Which one is a satirical show? Which one? Who? How could you tell? I don't know. <laughs> Welcome back. We are going live from the district because we are still trying to make sense of what the hell is going on with the Mueller report. Joining us now to talk about it is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Emma, good morning. Good morning. All right, so you are a Capitol Hill reporter, of course. What has the Hill been like since the Mueller report dropped or the summary, whatever you want to call it? You know, it was actually relatively quiet yesterday, which I found interesting. I think, obviously, there are some Republicans and Democrats who have come out and commented on it. But I feel like the, over, the overarching feeling is that people really want to see what's in the actual report. Yeah, people want to see it, and we will be getting to that. But here's a tweet from HuffPost's Igor Bobic. Asked by reporter Emma Dumaine about Senator Lindsey Graham's call for another special counsel to look into... Sigh. The Hillary Clinton email probe, Chris Kuhn said seriously several times and doubled over in laughter. I can't believe this is my job, he said. <laughs> Emma, why are we still talking about Hillary Clinton? Well, this is obviously a popular talking point for a certain group of Republicans, one of which has become Lindsey Graham, who is now the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Obviously, the House Freedom Caucus is 
you know, referred to this several times as well. Graham wants a second special counsel and has wanted this for a while. This isn't necessarily new to look into the handling of the email investigation. He wants them to also look into the application for a FISA warrant uh, for Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign advisor. So he wants a second special counsel to look into what he views uh, as misconduct at the DOJ and the FBI. Okay, so it is 2019. We're going into a 2020 election, of course. So it is surreal to see attention being drawn again to a 2016 candidate who's not running. What does the GOP, or at least the Freedom Caucus, Lindsey Graham, what do they hope to get out of this effort? Well, I think they're trying to turn the tables a little bit. For the last two years, all we've heard about is Mueller and potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. I think they're trying to kind of turn the tables and say, hey, look, uh, there's this alleged misconduct at the DOJ and the FBI. And the way this all started, you know, was was suspect, in their opinion, at least. Uh, And of course, this has been a talking point of the president as well. And so they're kind of trying to go on the offense here while they've been playing kind of defense for a long time. Yeah, a talking point that they've been using for a long time. How likely is it that this investigation will actually happen? I don't think it's going to actually happen. There isn't even widespread support within the Republican conference about doing a second special counsel. So I don't think it's something that is going to happen. Uh, I think people are pretty satisfied with, you know, say, IG reports and whatnot that have come out about the handling of those investigations and those issues. And so I don't think it's something that we're going to see. Obviously, Graham and others uh, are welcome to use their oversight powers in Congress to look into these matters, but I don't think it's going to get a second special counsel. Okay, all right. Well, you know, that whole story sounds petty, so let's change it up and talk about Mitch McConnell. Uh, Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blocked an attempt to make the Mueller report public. Uh, What is his reasoning? So he is arguing that for national security reasons and whatnot, that they should wait and let Barr and Mueller sort this out on their own. Barr did say in his summary this weekend that he was working with Mueller to identify areas of the report that would have to be redacted. So things that refer to grand jury proceedings uh, or ongoing investigations, things of that nature, because Barr says he wants to make as much of it public as possible. And so McConnell says they're already working on this issue. They're already working on getting it as much of it public as possible. So why do we need to pass this? Why do we, the public, need to see this? Can I ask, has Chuck Schumer responded? Yeah, so Chuck Schumer said, look, this is a non-binding resolution and it's not calling for it to be released immediately. There's nothing in the, in the resolution that says we need to release it right now. It's just saying that eventually we would like to make this report public. But, you know, McConnell wasn't having it saying, like, let's stick to the process Uh, saying that Barr, you know, has held up his end of the deal so far. And so let's let them work on what they're doing. Okay. And uh, are there other steps to making the Mueller report either fully available to the public or, you know, redacted versions available to the public? Yeah, I mean, Barr is apparently working on this with Mueller, but something that Congress could do is potentially subpoena the report. They definitely have measures uh, by which they could access the report. And actually, some leaders of uh, the House committees, 
you know, Cummings, Schiff, few of these other guys uh, sent a letter yesterday to the DOJ and Barr saying, basically, you have until April 2nd to get us this report and to start providing us the underlying evidence that was used to compile the report. And so they have kind of given a deadline. Obviously, they didn't use the word subpoena yet, but they're giving a deadline for a reason. Obviously, if that deadline is passed, there will be some further action, one would assume, because they're very intent on getting this thing public. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Emma, as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, friends, up next, I'm talking with someone very familiar with DC nonsense, Reed Scott, one of the stars of Veep. I'm excited to talk. Looking forward to his take on everything. (laughs) Is it real? What do you think of the Mueller report, Reed? Welcome back. I'm here with actor Reed Scott, who you know from Veep, Marble's Venom, and the upcoming movie Late Night, which I'm so excited about. Hey. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, okay, so Veep comes back next Sunday. Yeah. So excited. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what was the vibe like on set, knowing that this is the final season? Man, it ran the gamut. You yeah. know, from, from the moment we all sort of reconvened for the first table read of the last season— the emotions were high, like you know, first and foremost, because we got we got our Julia back. Right. You know, yeah. she she was healthy, clean bill of health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was like it's like mom's okay. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Is that like, how you guys. Yeah, you really. Yeah. yeah, she's like a big sister to 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 us all. You know, and um, so we were just really happy to have her back, and you know, a little bit of tears and right. stuff. But and then and then it was you know down to business, and then. Um, you know, it, it, it started to dawn on us probably halfway through. It's like, wow, this is the this is the last time we might be in this set, or this uh-huh. is the last time that we're gonna, you know, have this interact. These these characters might interact, and then you know, um, our cast is pretty big, mm-hmm. so we started to wrap people out yeah. every day for nine days, oh. and it was like a goodbye a every day, goodbye, every oh, day no. for nine days. These big emotional goodbyes. That's intense. And then sort of culminated with the the last day, uh, saying goodbye to to, to Juliet. It was. Man, everybody got a little weepy. <laughs> I'm getting a little weepy. Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay. Well, you know, Julia Louis Dreyfus. I'm so glad, yeah. of course, that you know she defeated breast cancer. She's a badass. She is a badass, yeah. and that's what I wanted to ask you about. I, I think we know her as being tough. She is a badass yeah. on the show and off screen. How do you support someone who's a badass when they're going through something like cancer? She's. God, I mean, the, almost the way she does everything. She she makes it easy for mm-hmm. everyone else. It's like um. Her work ethic is incredible. I think that's yeah. what we've all been so inspired by. It's like she just works tirelessly. Mm. So when she calls you up and says, you know, like, you know, hey, do this, you know, this mm-hmm. video for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, a, of course, no brainer. In the beginning, you know, to support her, it was just, you know, we love her. We've become a family. So it was mm-hmm. just, you know, the way you'd support anybody, a little, you know, some, some tenderness, a little, you know, TLC here and there. Um, and then, you know, give her some privacy. So, like, give her some space. Right. Like, like we said, she's she's a tough chick. Mm-hmm. Trusting that trust, like she takes care of herself, um, but she's also very sensitive. And when when she needed a little little boost, we gave her the boost that she needed, mm-hmm. and um, we got right back to work, man. And she she never lost a step. It's just that she's remarkable. I've never seen awesome. anything like it. Oh my gosh! Not, ah, I just love her. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, well, you know, we were, we, of course, we're just talking about DC politics and yes. that kind of chaos. Yes. And your show very much has always been about that chaos. But, you know, Veep started in 2012. Obviously, Trump wasn't in office, but also like Twitter. I think it maybe just started. It was brand new. Yeah, it was very new yeah. at that time, and certainly nothing like it is oh, now. Matt Walsh and Tim Simons, mm-hmm. who played Mike and Jonah. Mm-hmm. 
literally had to sit me down and explain to me what Twitter was. I didn't understand it. It was like that new. I yeah. didn't get it. So what's how what's it feel like satirizing, you know, DC culture and, and obviously the White House now as opposed to at the very beginning? It's very different. It's very different. One of the things that we've had almost remarkable luck with mm-hmm. is that the show came on sort of at the advent of social media. Okay. And so we were able to reflect that in the show and sort mm. of evolve that in the show and, and show how it, it it does influence. Right. And Julia's character being like, like, what the it, fuck? Why is yeah, this matter? Yeah, and, you know, and she had, we had the episode, I think, season three, where she, you know, was rogue tweeting, <laughs> you know? And it was like, I, again, I didn't even understand right. what that meant yeah. at the time. And uh-huh. now it's like, it's commonplace. Um, but yeah, where we are now, it, it's a very different you know, political landscape mm-hmm. and social landscape. I don't know that a show like Veep would get off the ground today because I think it almost relied on the contrast. You know, when, when Obama was in office, mm. things were, in my opinion, a little more peaceful and okay. calm. And so the show was showing you how the sausage was made and right. how these people are despicable and it's all sort of manic and crazy. Uh-huh. And you needed that contrast okay. in order to get the satire. Now, you just turn on the news and you see uh-huh. how manic and crazy like, and how oh, despicable we get everybody is. <laughs> so I, I don't know that it would work. Yeah. Um, but the writers have done an incredible job of, you know, we don't try to mimic anything that right. we see, but at least sort of reflect it a little bit. Uh-huh. And just how they've rolled with the punches and evolved over the years has yeah. been amazing. Is it still as fun? Because you're right. I mean, I think of like West Wing as a response to George W. Bush being in exactly. the White House. And then Veep is a response to, you know, the Obama years. And, yeah. um, and it seems like really fun to be like, actually, this is a mess and we don't know what we're doing. Right. Does it feel the same way to be like in the midst of that chaos when it is you know, a part of our reality, too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you try to... This season in particular, too, I wouldn't say it's a response mm-hmm. to where we're at, you know, socially, economically, politically, um, but it influenced the writing in such a way that it, it almost... It, it Because we knew it was our last season as, okay. season as well, we were able to just take the gloves off and okay. go bigger mm-hmm. with everything because that's just the way everything feels right now. It just mm-hmm. feels bigger. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it doesn't jump the shark. Everything's definitely earned. But I think season seven will stand apart because there's just a different attitude okay. in, in the season at large. It was, I mean, for my part, it was the most fun we've ever had. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, it's been revealed uh, that uh, BuzzFeed is a part of the final season oh, of the yeah. plot. And so you guys can't see it at home, but there are 500 cats uh, staring at us all. So I have to ask you about it. How does BuzzFeed fit into Veep this time? Uh, Matt Walsh's character, okay. Mike. <laughs> no. Yeah, of all people. Somehow he ends up landing at BuzzFeed. And okay. He's like the last guy yeah. in I'm the world. I'm trying to picture him getting coffee. I, exactly, yeah. So it's so it's him walking around. like he's 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 the old guy. He's the fossil. But one of my favorite bits... Is uh, he starts dressing the part? So so Mike, who's like you know so staid and like old man in his wardrobe, starts like dressing real hip. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh gosh, it's funny. I am. Yeah, I'm I don't already embarrassed. Away, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I also want to talk about late night. I'm so excited. Yeah. I love Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson. Like icons. They're amazing. Incredible. Yeah. For so many reasons. What's it like working with them? I had the best time. Mm-hmm. Mindy and I were, were sort of friends before. Okay. And she wrote an incredible script. Like, I was really, I mean, I knew she was a great writer yeah. from The Office and everything. Uh-huh. But this script, it just, it blew us all away. Everyone in the cast. Like, we, we, this was an indie film. Okay. You know, it feels a lot bigger when you see it. They did a great job. But this had, like, a very small budget. Everybody, you know, did it because we loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because of the, the, the script that she put together. And then 
uh, Emma is just, she's a force. Mm -hmm. she, I mean, first of all, she's so beautiful, you know, and she's just, she's tall and statuesque and really funny. I, yeah. I, I didn't realize, I mean, I knew she was funny, but she started off in sketch comedy. Yeah. She and Hugh Laurie. She's hilarious. Started off on a show called Alfresco okay. in the UK in like wow. the early 80s. They were like legit comics. Uh -huh. So she's, I mean, she's like like Julie Louis-Dreyfus really? funny. I saw her in a production of Sweeney Todd and it was- Oh like my gosh, she's hysterical. And yeah. she's so generous and warm. And, and I mean, and man, she just like nails every take. And I blew a couple, t I had a terrible cold this one week and I was <laughs> okay. like, I'm literally hacking up a line. I'm like holding my breath <laughs> while she's delivering this very emotional speech. And I blew one of the takes, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." Yeah. She's like, "She's like, no, sweetheart, I didn't want to do it again." So thank you, you saved me. <laughs> she's everything. <laughs> she's, she's wonderful. Emma Thompson. Oh my favorite. god, she's great. Um, something else I love about Emma Thompson and Mindy Killing is that they've also not just great on screen, but as great as artists and writers, but very outspoken about important political issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do you think men can do to better support women in Hollywood? Because they've both spoken a lot about yeah, that. I think just say yes. Mm. Say yes. I mean, there's there, there's so much opportunity out there, especially. Especially like in, in Hollywood right now, when you look at, you know, there's a million streaming services and it's like there's so much content being generated. Right. We're finally now just starting to scratch the surface of all the different facets, you know, that, that we can get into, whether it's, you know, women, you know, LBGTQ, you know, anything, you know, uh, that's just non-boring freaking white guy mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, like, finally we can do that. But specifically mm -hmm. with women, I've had such incredible luck to work with so many strong women over the years it's inspiring. I, I love working, you know, with women and for women. And there's just so many stories to tell. I mean, uh, Julia and Emma are, and Mindy are two or three incredible examples of, you know, women in leadership mm -hmm. roles. And they're not doing it, you know, they, they, they could if they wanted to just be like, you know, I'm the lead. This is my movie. This is my right. TV show. Do it my way. They're so generous mm -hmm. and they approach it. You know, it, it, it's hard working on a set. It's, it's like a little army. Mm. You know, tensions run high. And having these three particular women at the helm was amazing because they just they they approached everything with just this warmth and grace and poise. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, I, I was just inspired by their work ethic. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Just say yes. Just say yes. It's okay. really not hard, guys. Um, well, you heard music for a second, and I love that there was like a little bit of music the moment you said LGBTQ. I was like, <laughs> yes, our time is here. But um, there's music coming because I have a game I want to play with you real quick. Real cool. you go. It is called. Thank you. Okay. Who the Veep? Uh-huh. I'm <laughs> so excited about this. Okay, so we're going to have a 10-second timer. Okay. Um, and when I say go, I want you to name as many vice presidents as you can. Okay. There were 48. Oh, God. I learned today. Oh, my God. All Are right. you ready? Wow. And I get no clues. I just, yeah, I just go I, in as many as I frankly, can. Frankly, I couldn't help you if I wanted to. Oh, wow. So, right. okay. You ready? Okay, yeah. Uh, go. Uh, let's see. John Quincy Adams... Going way back there. Uh, oh man. Uh, uh, oh my God. Uh, Dan Quayle. Okay. Uh, George Bush won. Oh my God. That's it. That's all I got. You got three. That's terrible. Dog, you didn't even give us the current vice president. No, I was. I was. I, <laughs> well, he's not it's, real. I mean, it's does, fine. does he count? <laughs> I get it. You, a good three. Thank you. A good three. <laughs> I wasn't oh my no, John Quincy Adams. You know, that was impressive. I wouldn't have been able to send John to, John to the floor. Anyway, right. <laughs> thank you for playing along. Thanks for being here. Absolutely, this man. Was Thanks really, for having really me. really fun. Guys, uh, the final season of V premieres this Sunday, March 31st on HBO. Obviously, we're all going to be like watching it together, laughing, and probably crying a little bit together. Uh, up next, Aro Kwan is here to discuss her powerful op-ed. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, man. <laughs>
Here's a tweet from author of The Incendiaries, R.O. Kwan. Unrelated to anything, should I write a piece asking the rest of the country to please stop calling Asian American women adorable and cute? We are not kittens. We will fuck you up. Well, lucky for all of us, she did wind up writing that piece for the New York Times and she called it, Stop Calling Asian Women Adorable. Aro joins me now. Hello, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, thank you for having me. So I really enjoyed your piece and I think you made such great points. And I think one of the things is, People say they're feminist and they, you know, have all these beliefs that they tell you and then they end up calling attention to your appearance while you're trying to go out and promote your work. Do you have any other examples of this you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I think that what struck me about, about the, this phenomenon of being called adorable and cute in professional settings is that people don't even seem to recognize that that it's racism, that it's sexism, that, that it's diminishing. Um, and I, I mean, I have so many examples from friends. Um, the writer, the writer Beth Wynn was saying, was saying on Twitter um, about this piece that she, that she, a very famous writer, she directs a writing program and a very famous writer came to visit the program and she looked at Beth Wynn and she said, um, uh, wow, why do they have a child directing the program? Um, another writer friend, Catherine Chung, was interviewing for a job, um, and at the interview, the person interviewing her said, um, "Why did they send me a twelve-year-old for this job?" And so again and again, I think it, and I think especially in professional context, which is why I wanted to talk about what it's like to 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 be called cute and adorable at work over and over again. Is it we're not taken seriously? Um, cute and adorable; those are words for for kittens, for children, um, and kittens and children don't kittens and children don't get don't get jobs. Kittens and children don't get promotions. They don't get published. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, kittens and children aren't necessarily something you'd want to be compared to while you're trying to promote your work, which is very serious. And you mentioned that this is both racist and sexist. And obviously, you know, this is a sexist issue, but I want to particularly talk about how this phenomenon affects Asian women in particular. How do you think that cute and adorable are tied into stereotypes about Asian women? Um, that's a great question. I think... Uh, that's a great question. So by and large, um, I, I think there are maybe three roles in the, in the, in the American imagination for, um, for Asian women. And one is that we're sort of harmless. Um, it ties into the, the, terrible, the terrible label of, of, my, of model minority. The idea that we belong to any kind of model minority um, is, is, is meant to separate us from other people of color. So there's that, that we're harmless, that we're, that we're small, um, even when we're not. Um, so there's that. The second, a second rule is sort of, um, is like the, there's a hypersexualized notion of Asian American women. A third role is, is the sort of tiger mom, dragon lady kind of Asian woman. Um, and these are, and, that, and that's pretty much it. Um, and I think that once we, if we either were seen, we're often either seen as, as sort of fitting into these slots or, people, or we're seen as, or people get angry when we step up outside of these slots. And so, of course, the sort of, um, the flip side of people viewing Asian American women as being adorable, cute, harmless, um, pixie-like, which is the word that people, that people were using to describe Mary, Mary Kondo, um, 
the minute we step outside of that and try to speak up for ourselves, um, we, there, there, can be, there can be so much anger because we're stepping outside of the stereotype. You met, Yeah, you mentioned Marie Kondo, and that was a thing that, me personally, just looking at the coverage of Marie Kondo and her show, which I loved and thought was such a great, just a great, she has such a great thing going and such a great business going, is everyone just kept describing her as like cute or like a pixie. And do people, why do you think that this coverage was playing into those stereotypes and how as journalists can people do better? Um, that's great. And I love, I love the idea of, well, I think there's something about, because people were getting angry about Marie Kondo, right? There were, um, the, 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 the sort of the, the tweets that sparked this piece for me, um, where there were, there were three, there were three feminists. There were three prominent white feminists who were talking about her show and saying that it was symptomatic of Americans decline, that she was speaking Japanese on her show. Um, and, and they, and, you know, they used, they used these words, they called her fairy-like, um, they called her a pixie. They talked about her delicacy. Someone said, I am immune to Tinkerbell's charms. Um, and I think there's something that there's something, I, I, I think that there was something threatening about the fact that they, they were imagining that Marie Kondo was telling them what to do. And I think that given this role that we're slotted into this idea that American that, that Asian-American women are cute, we're adorable, we're, we're harmless. Um, I think it gets to be, if people take, people have, people have even more trouble with being told what to do by Asian-American women because of this. Um, and I think it's just, again, I, I wanted to write this piece because I think a lot of, there are people, there are people who know better. There are people who, for whom this, this is coming as news, that, that a lot of Asian-American women don't want to be called adorable, cute, um, in a professional context. And I, th- I think that's why I wanted to write the piece to say, look, this is, this is racist. It reads to us as racist. Um, and if you didn't know, I'm going to tell you now. Yeah, I think if you view Marie Kondo as anything but a badass businesswoman who has a global company, then you're doing yourself a disservice and your readers. Well, thank you so much, RO, for coming to talk about this important issue. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Her book, The Incendiaries, is available now. And up next, we're talking to the author of Woke Baby, Mahogany L. Brown. Writer Mahogany L. Brown tweeted, I asked a group of young children what the word woke means. The young one to my left replied, it means your eyes open and you say, yes, I'm awake. Yes, I'm free. I just Mm. love that. Well, poet Mahogany L. Brown joins me right now to talk about her new book, Woke Baby. I love this so much. Hi. 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 Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Also. Okay, so I was reading this with my producer, Mary Wilson, yesterday. She has a young child. I am a young child. Yes. And we started crying. (laughs) We were just like, oh, okay, we have time actually to sit here, read it together and kind of, and I I just, it was a beautiful and emotional. um, What, what inspired you to write this book? I really wanted to have a moment where we're looking at what's happening now, but Mm. also um, lend some some actual um, books and verbiage to the landscape, the canon of children literacy. Mm. And what does that mean to like be alive 
and fighting right now in this time mm. and give our young people uh, something for their toolkit, something to remember. Like, we, we will survive this, trust that. Mm -hmm. But it is happening. And Woke Baby is, is a stamp. Is a, is a time stamp of what's happening now. A time stamp. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, here's something you tweeted as well. Um, the hate has already begun. Woke does not mean angry. It means actualized. It means alert. It means reaching for what is yours, kicking and breathing. So I, I thought that was so interesting. What is the negative response people are having to the idea of a woke baby? And, and how do you define woke beyond that? Well... Um, the things that I've seen online yeah. are, I mean, contrary is a thing, right? People love to, to troll. Okay. And that's great. But then when you have them coming um, at young people, like mm. just a moment for us to say, here's our babies. This is what it means to be a global citizen. And someone actually being anti that mm. is mind boggling to yeah. me. So I've been seeing all these tweets about, you know, liberalism is going to kill our kids and just like really random troll stuff. So I thought I have to say something because yeah. woke is not a trend. It it has always been, right. right? If we're looking at the civil rights movement, if we're looking at the black arts movement, it has always been. Mm -hmm. We just have a, a, a phrase, a catchphrase for now, mm -hmm. but the sentiment and the consciousness has always been here. Right, if it's new to you, you're illiterate. You're late. I mean, that, that's, that's just the truth. Um, yeah, so let's talk about a detail in the book, because, I mean, it's you, obviously you're coming to this as a poet, as a parent. In the book you write at one point, look at your fist, fingers curled into a panther's paw, pointing up, 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 reaching mm -hmm. for justice. And it's just kind of the baby kind of stretching mm -hmm. out and, mm -hmm. and getting ready for their day. Um, how did you connect the idea of wokeness to the natural movement of a, of a kid kind of getting their day started? Well, I love the idea of the woke baby, right? Even the end, it's says you never ever sleep and if mm -hmm. you have children you know you're not they don't sleep there's no sleep there's a nap <laughs> right there's a break yeah but that baby is a real revolutionary they don't sleep <laughs> so i wanted to really pay homage to like the obvious but uh -huh. also like you know the underlining the subtext mm. what this means uh it can mean something so much larger if you really look closely mm -hmm. and i love that part because when i read it to kids they actually start reaching up and i say show me your fist and they're like uh, oh and gosh. it is, when I tell you, like, chills, yeah. chills, so yeah. good. And say more. I mean, that was what I think that started to get to my producer and I as we were reading it. Like, mm -hmm. there was a reaction. So what are some of the other responses you've had as you've been reading the book to kids? You ask them to show me your eyes, uh -huh. and then they're pointing to their eyes. Oh. Um, I say, uh, you dancing and babbling for freedom. And, I'm, and I say, what is your song? What's your favorite song? Uh -huh. And they start getting up and dancing. If you have toddlers, they'll do it. And I mean... You know, I haven't had a baby in a very long time, but I do remember uh -huh. what it's like yeah. for this baby to just move on their own. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, like someone who brought this baby into the world, mm -hmm. what does that mean to like watch them yeah. move into the world and make the world theirs? Because it is. That's beautiful. Something I, I always ask writers, um, what has this book done to you? What has this book done for you? To me, the book has reminded me... Um, that the kids got next. Mm. And for me, the kids, uh, the book has reminded me that um, I used to be a kid too. Mm. And um, like, what does it mean to honor that? Like, I wanna honor that kind of freedom mm. of children. Nina Simone said it, right? What is fear? Mm. Um, what, what is freedom, no fear? So I wanna, I wanna honor like 
that that fearlessness that mm-hmm. children have. Like they run, they fall, they bump something, they jump back up. They like say, this is mine. They make noise, they take up space. Mm-hmm. And as a black woman body right now, I'm afraid to take up space all the time, mm. right? So I just want to get back to that. And remember that freedom. And remember that freedom. I love it. Well, thank you for this book. Thank you for your black girl magic as always. Thank you. Guys, uh, Woke Baby is available everywhere. Her name is Mahogany L. Brown. Know her, follow her, continue to read her work. Uh, up next, Isaac and I are going to read more of your tweets. Yes. Oh, my look! All right, welcome back. Before we get to your tweets, you've probably noticed that there is some developing breaking news on the timeline about Jesse Smollett. We have a tweet here from reporter Chris Hush of NBC. Um, so Jesse Smollett just walked into the court for an emergency hearing. Apparently, sources are saying it sounds like there are, there's good news. Um, and to that point, uh, an exact quote from Jesse's spokesperson, um, it's fucking huge and you guys need to get down here. Stay tuned, my friends. I also have uh, the timeline here for Zach Stafford. He's the editor-in-chief of The Advocate. He's been on the show and covering this. Um, he says, we can only speculate, but his team is very excited and Jesse Smollett is expected to speak for the first time publicly since the GMA interview he did with Robin Roberts. Wow. So, you know, I think we've all learned to be very careful and measured in how we discuss and speculate, but obviously we're going to follow this. It's- and that's the quote. Sometimes the quote is just the quote and the quote said, fucking get down here. That's- yeah. All right. All right. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. In the meantime, we asked you, what white collar crime would you be most likely to commit? Princess Slaya says, you're about to get me to admit how I would secure my bag on the Twitter timeline, shaking my head. I think y'all might be the feds. And see? Great response. Excellent. It was a test. It was a test. You passed. <laughs> we didn't even coordinate. Good I'm job. I'm to say that. Absolutely. Good job. You passed, young nice lady. Nice job. We're proud nice of job. you. Good, good, good. Good, good, good. Go get uh, the money. <laughs> get that money, but don't tell anybody about it. Shh. Okay. We also wanted to know how you felt about the Apple news. I don't feel anything. Rachel Hey Girlfield tweeted, uh, Apple events are more like Marvel movies and TV shows. Too many to keep up with. I'm, huh. Marvel movies I'll keep up with. TV shows, yeah, not so much. I'm trying to watch a few. I can't remember the last time I watched an Apple event, if I'm being totally honest. No, I watched a bit of the Oprah clip, and then I was like, huh. I think the last time uh, Apple did something that really impressed me, and it's followed through, is the, the AirPods. That's when I was like, oh, okay, like, it's changed. It, it impressed me. It's changed the way I use my phone. I haven't had that kind of dynamic feeling in a while. And you haven't lost uh, a single pair since. <laughs> Thank you so much to our guests, Rebecca O'Brien, Nicole Wynn, Emma Loop, Reed Scott, Stephanie McNeil, R.O. Kwan, and Mahogany L. Brown. What a beautiful conversation that was. Thank you. We stand Reed Scott and Mahogany L. Brown. Mm. Isaac is off tomorrow. Um, so Stephanie and I will be back here tomorrow morning. Tomorrow is Wednesday. Nice job. Uh, <laughs> named after Odin. Have a great rest of your day, and uh, I guess we'll see you on Twitter. <laughs> 